Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines Podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University, and I am host of the Guidelines Podcast. My co-host tonight is Dr. Jorge Ahmed. He's a resident also at The Ohio State University. Tonight, our topic that we will be reviewing is Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Occipital Nerve Stimulation for the Treatment of Patients with Medically Refractory Occipital Neuralgia and Update. I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Mike Stout to the podcast tonight. He is the first author of the publication. And so to get us going, I'll ask Dr. Stout to give us an overview and a summary of, of all the hard work that he put into his publication. Go ahead. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invites. Good evening. My name is Michael Stoutz. I'm a functional uh, epilepsy neurosurgeon at uh, Beaumont Royal Oak and Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine in Southeast Michigan. So uh, this is a, a pretty special paper, an update of the 2015 guidelines uh, on occipital nerve stimulation for occipital neuralgia, first written by Dr. Jennifer Sweet. This is a uh, as I say, a special guideline because it's a special problem that's a very rare in neurosurgery that we see. Occipital neuralgia is what we call a sharp electrical paroxysmal pain that's a occasional throbbing quality originating from the occipital nerves. And as many of our listeners will know, the occipital nerves can be lesser, greater, the third occipital nerve. Um, it is typically unilateral, but can be bilateral. Uh, this is a very classical pain pattern that's been uh, treated by neurosurgeons and pain physicians for many years. And the way we have typically treated this over time has been with either decompression surgeries, uh, neurolysis, transection, sometimes doing a C2 ganglionectomy, uh, but in more modern times has been with neuromodulation with occipital nerve stimulation. Now, peripheral nerve stimulation has a longstanding history um, dating back to uh, uh, decades and decades, back mid-century, the 1950s and 60s. When, pe when people were stimulating their own infraorbital nerves to try and treat uh, neuropathic pain. Um, and so people have been trying to stimulate nerves uh, in a variety of different ways. And the beauty of peripheral nerve stimulation is that uh, if you can put an electrode on it, you can stimulate it. And uh, theoretically, you can interrupt the pain pathways. And of course, all this is born out of the gate theory for pain control. Um, no one knows exactly how it works, uh, but the idea being that you're closing the gates uh, for pain control. So... The whole idea of this uh, uh, back in 2015 being borne out was that uh, there were no guidelines for um, this uh, neuropathic pain syndrome, um, and people had been using occipital nerve stimulation for many years, so they tried to summarize the evidence at that time. To get a bit into occipital nerve stimulation, it's interesting because there's different ways you can do it, and there is no one way, and there's actually no on-label use of technology for this. Um, so typically we're using spinal cord stimulation electrodes, um, such as percutaneous electrodes, and even sometimes paddle electrodes, which we put over top of the occipital nerves, again, in an off-label fashion, and uh, stimulate them with uh, the spinal cord stimulator generator, or the uh, IPG. 
And you can do this either by directly visualizing the occipital nerve and put the paddle on top of it. So you can do it by putting the percutaneous lead in a percutaneous uh, fashion in the general region. Um, and then typically using tonic or the tingling programs overlying the, the distribution of the occipital nerve and people have pleasant paresthesia which overlap that area. Uh, so the, the idea of the original guidelines was to see, well, is there, is there a best technology? What's the evidence? And uh, what is the efficacy? And so back in 2015, there was a literature search published up to April 2014, um, and they found uh, nine different studies that met the inclusion criteria um, at that time, and the inclusion criteria being um, that uh, a clinical series had to have a minimum of three patients. You had to have a minimum of uh, two months post-operative follow-up from occipital nerve similar implantation, um, and you had to have a uh, target population of people with occipital neuralgia. Um, and that's actually more difficult than you think to, to meet those three criteria because this is an off-label indication, because uh, occipital nerve simulation isn't the most popular thing. Um, it's uh, Most papers are case reports, case series. It's low level of evidence. There is no high level evidence. There's no randomized control trials for occipital nerve stimulation. So back in 2015, they could only find nine studies uh, over the course of this entire um, literature search and basically came up with the fact, uh, came up with their level three recommendation that this is a, a viable treatment option for patient with medically refractory occipital neuralgia. Um, so again, not, no high level evidence, uh, but uh, uh, in the literature, it is efficacious. Uh, it can be lasting, um, but that is a level three recommendation. So fast forward to recently, we, um, in accordance with the um, ANS, uh, CNS um, Joint Guidelines Committee, we updated the literature search. Uh, we reran it through PubMed and uh, we added uh, Embase um, and we went from April 2014 to present. Uh, and we looked at approximately 400 articles, found 18 that went through a full text review, um, and only identified six. So in the um, in the entire time, could only find an entire six articles that met that inclusion criteria. I'll get into that in a moment. Um, and nothing changed. So the update was only for uh, the verbiage only of how we describe um, uh, describe our recommendations with um, uh, uh, these joint uh, um, guideline committee uh, reviews. And so the recommendation, again, is still level three, and we word it as clinicians may use occipital nerve stimulation as a treatment option for patients with medically refractory occipital neuralgia. So nothing has changed. Um, and that's interesting, but not so interesting in this world, because again, it's difficult to do any sort of research, to do any sort of high-level evidence in, this, in, a, in a pathology where there's not a defined treatment paradigm. We still use off-label, um, it's an off-label use of a spot simulation technology. The biggest um, update has really been in peripheral nerve stimulation. So whereas cranial facial peripheral nerve stimulation, so things like trigeminal neuropathic pain, occipital neuralgia has kind of stalled in terms of what we can do, um, peripheral nerve stimulation for other indications has flourished. So you talk about uh, peripheral nerve stimulation for trunk pain for um, uh, post-amputation, shoulders, knees. Uh, there are many devices. There are many indications. There, uh, there's a variety of different approvals out there, high-level evidence. And typically, these devices that are being used are, are independence, independently powered devices. They're small electrodes with external pulse generators. So the difference between that and what we're talking about here so spot simulators typically have um, a, a larger or small generator that needs to be implanted underneath the skin. And these new devices 
um, have a, a wireless generator that's placed on top of the skin and powers it for, for time. And uh, when that uh, runs out, it can be um, uh, recharged externally. Um, there's a number of reasons why this hasn't been applied to craniofacial uh, stimulation. Um, uh, biggest reason is because it's difficult to put the external power generator in the region of the scalp um, and, and hold a charge. People have looked at uh, putting it in hats, for example, things like that. But really, um, the the difficulty of, of finding a homogeneous patient population to study, as opposed to someone who has shoulder pain or knee pain uh, versus craniofacial pain, has made this not a, a very attractive um, uh, uh, avenue of study. Um, and really, just the failure of occipital nerve stimulation um, in, in other studies has kind of dampened any expectations of, of making a big craniofacial pain study. Another thing that's uh, another important point is that there was a big push years ago uh, to do occipital nerve stimulation for migraine and chronic headache. There was something called the OnStim study um, back in the, around 2014. Um, and there was a lot of, a lot of uh, hype to be able to do, use this technology to treat migraines, because obviously migraines is a much bigger problem uh, than occipital uh, neuralgia. Um, and there was a lot of hype behind the study. And the feasibility study was actually successful and led to a randomized control trial, uh, which unfortunately failed to meet its primary endpoints. Um, of uh, headache um, severity reduction, but interestingly did lead to a decrease in the number of uh, headache days. But the biggest problem, and the biggest problem that is uh, um, persistent throughout all these studies, including the studies that were included here, are that it's a pretty high rate of adverse events. And so what I mean by adverse events in occipital nerve stimulation is because these leads are off-label, um, there's no clear implantation strategy, um, and there's no um, there's no manufacturing uh, implantation strategy. So in the cranial facial region, especially in the occipital nerve region, uh, when you move a neck, when someone moves their neck, uh, you're putting tension on wires back there. So if you have wires that lead down to an IPG in your back, uh, they're prone to migration, they're prone to fracture, they're prone to erosion, infection, and so I think in the uh, the onstem. Uh, RCT, it was about a 70% adverse uh, um, um, adverse event rate. And you see up to like 20, 40% adverse events in a lot of these uh, retrospective case series. Uh, so that's one of the, been always the biggest um, um, dampeners on why cranial facial pain has not been studied in any great detail is because typically when you look at the data, you see such a high adverse event rate. And that's why it's been very interesting moving towards these wireless devices is because, well, they don't need an internal IPG, they're less prone to migration, um, um, and they can be powered externally. So this is hopefully what we see as a, um, a kind of a, a stopgap update to the um, um, uh, toxicity nerve stimulation. There are some smaller studies in the works looking at cranial facial pain again. Um, a temporary device actually recently just uh, received um, uh, on-label approval for treatment of, of headaches, including occipital neuralgia, um, by a temporary device uh, targeting the occipital nerves. Um, and that's based on retrospective uh, data. But people are still, uh, companies are still looking at this just in a smaller fashion. It doesn't have as much uh, as much uh, um, interest as, uh, as other indications with peripheral nerve stimulation. And then conversely, there are external devices. There are external trigeminal nerve stimulators, but those have only been looked at in terms of, uh, in terms of migraine and headache. So nothing looks at occipital nerve, uh, um, occipital neuralgia. 
And I guess the, the last point I want to make uh, based on that is another challenge of doing occipital neuralgia and occipital nerve stimulation is occipital neuralgia itself is very rare. Um, and it's very difficult to diagnose, even though we mentioned at the beginning, it's a sharp paroxysmal pain, it's in the occipital nerves. But how many different pain syndromes can you think about um, in the posterior scalp that kind of share that uh, different that terminology? Cervicogenic headaches are very common and are much more common than occipital neuralgia. Cervicogenic headaches have posterior scalp pain. It more so radius towards the frontal temporal region. More so you have a, a spine pathology and originates kind of in the, uh, the facet joints, the um, atlantoaxial joints. But still, sometimes you see very uh, um, a very close clinical picture. They both respond to occipital nerve blocks. In fact, both pathology respond to occipital nerve stimulation. Um, and you could have post-traumatic headaches. You could have just occipital headaches in general, which have a posterior scalp uh, predisposition. Actual occipital neuralgia is very rare. Of all headache paradigms, it's probably 1%. Um, and so that's that's also the difficulty of really um, putting forward a robust study is it's a vanishingly rare um, phenomenon. Um, you have a massive adverse event rate with any type of um, stimulation that we do these days. Um, and really just the interest has been in other peripheral nerve stimulation for trunk, um, axial, and appendicular uh, pain. So in functional neurosurgery, we, we love doing this. Honestly, this is one of the uh, best uh, patient um, outcomes that I have. Uh, but to, to give you a comparison, I maybe do 300 spontaneous a year, and I think I'm pretty busy, and I'll do 10 or less occipital nerve stimulators. So maybe a bit of a selection bias, but these patients are uh, typically very happy. And it's unfortunate that we don't really have a good device uh, uh, that's on label. So that's uh, that's uh, the summary. I'm open to any questions. Yeah, that was a phenomenal summary. Um, you know, one thing that that I, I kind of wanted to hear you tell me is what what constitutes in these patients being medically refractory? Great question. So when we think about occipital neuralgia, um, in terms of medical treatments, you can treat it much like neuropathic pain or even like trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, so you start with things, uh, uh, more typically things like gabapentin uh, and pregabalin. Um, and uh, um, often you'll go down again the trigeminal neuralgia pathway with uh, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine. Um, often don't respond. Um, and then uh, occipital nerve blocks are, are fairly, uh, fairly common here. And the occipital nerve block is typically a mixture of anything like a local anesthetic and a steroid. Um, and you will target pretty much the entire distribution of the occipital nerve, meaning you'll do both third, um, greater, and lesser occipital nerve, often bilaterally. So when we talk about medical refractoriness, it's, it's, it's mostly uh, refractory to the medications. Um, it's a good point that uh, there probably is no actual definition of what, well, how many medications you have to fail. Often in the literature, it's two or three. Um, and that's, that'd, be, that'd be pretty similar here. And you'll find a different, um, uh, different definitions across the studies too. Typically, it's, it's, a, it's a two or three medications. Um, and then the other point with occipital nerve blocks is that also is not ubiquitous between studies. Uh, an original um, point that was looked at the original guidelines was, well, uh, can you predict the efficacy of occipital nerve stimulation with an occipital nerve block? Um, and uh, no, it, 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 not necessarily. In my personal practice, I always do occipital nerve blocks for these patients, um, but uh, a number of these studies, including uh, one in the current guidelines, uh, did show that uh, um, even if you do a, um, um, a, a random block with either saline or, um, or local anesthetic um, 
uh, with a steroid, it doesn't predict the efficacy of occipital nerve stimulation. Because one of the things that that jumps out, and, I, and I'm not in this uh, space whatsoever, but if if you're if the candidate patients for for these studies are those that have been dealing with this for a long time, a long enough time that they've failed a bunch of medical therapies, are you are you sort of setting up the trials, um, for lack of a better term, to fail just because you're picking patients that just have a really tough disease to begin with or a tough version of the disease to begin with? Absolutely. And you'll see that across the cranial facial pain spectrum. Um, anything that deals with, uh, and when I, when I say cranial facial pain, I include this, I include trigeminal neuropathic pain. Uh, so not trigeminal neuralgia, um, but uh, kind of the more refractory neuropathic pain paradigms. And the, the papers you see published on this, absolutely. they These are not the patients that are doing well on a couple of medications, but honestly, in practice, uh, the medications for these pain, um, pain presentations honestly aren't that effective. But you're right, you are kind of, you're setting yourself up for a bit of failure because they're already refractory of, of pain patients. And refractory neuropathic pain is one of the most, and neuralgic pain are one of the most uh, difficult pain patterns to treat. So I do want to give my resident co-host an opportunity to ask a couple questions. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself and fire away. Yeah, thank you so much for the for the summary. It was uh, it was really interesting to read about uh, this topic. Uh, I'm I'm Ahmed Jorge. I'm one of the PGY2s here at Ohio State. I wanted to ask you a couple couple things. Uh, I read. Um, so, do you ever get people refer for migraines and cervicogenic uh, uh, headaches to your clinic? And how do you end up uh, assessing them through their through their pathology? So, absolutely. Um, honestly, I have rarely seen anybody show up with pure occipital neuralgia. And if you look at a lot of the papers, including some of the ones that are included in the current uh, guidelines, um, they will often show up with mixed headache headache patterns. Um, one of the difficulties uh, and one of the reasons why there's so few papers included here is that we try to separate those that describe outcomes specifically for occipital neuralgia or if their primary diagnosis was occipital neuralgia. So yes, I see patients with cervical, well, so often patients will come saying, oh, I have occipital neuralgia or I was referred for occipital neuralgia, but they will have a different headache paradigm. Um, and I will see patients with primary migraine too. Um, a lot of patients will come because they are in facial pain or migraine support groups. Um, and so they will just discover practitioners who are doing this. Um, it is great to have a partner who is a headache neurologist. Uh, where I practice, I have one in the community who uh, we refer to back and forth. Um, but headache neurologists, uh, uh, in my area at least, are very rare. Um, and if you're at a, an institution that has that, that's, that's gold. Uh, because not only can you work with somebody who can help diagnose in a more accurate manner, but also uh, manage medically in a more accurate manner. So the treatment of migraines um, has undergone uh, a paradigm shift, basically, in terms of the medical management and with uh, things like CGRP inhibitors. Um, and there are actually very good treatments for migraine. Um, but again, with that being said, people still have refractory migraine and people have mixed headache patterns with migraine and migraine responds to this. And we know this from those original uh, feasibility and the OnStem studies. When you, when you look at a hard cutoff point of headache severity, again, headaches are challenging to diagnose and to treat and also to document. But the one thing that was pervasive across the trials is that headache days were reduced. And so 
much like when you do spinal cord stimulation and you're asked that 50% pain cutoff, it's often a bit uh, more gray than that. It, like we ask people about how are, how are they sleeping better? Um, how are they functioning better throughout the day? If you take a patient with migraine and overall their headache uh, day day number are reduced, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, so getting back to your original question, yes, people often show up in a mixed manner. They're often self-referrals. Um, and if they come in with like a primary migraine, then you want to get them to see a headache neurologist uh, or someone who specializes in the treatment of headaches, especially if they haven't managed medically appropriate at that point. Um, but yeah, we are doing trials, blocks, and eventually implants on people uh, that have migraine, but are often a mixed picture. My other question, um, what, what do you see uh, the reasons why insurance companies are not covering for this, uh, for simulators, and how can we overcome that? Is it the fact that we don't have tri enough trials, or is there something else going on? Great question. So when I trial this, it never gets denied. When I go to implants, it will often get denied, and that's true of cranial facial pain. The trial electrodes or the CPT codes for percutaneous uh, peripheral nerve stimulator electrodes um, are almost often always approved. The, the thing that gets denied is the generator. So the generator is a spinal cord simulator generator. And so when we talk about cost of a product, uh, the electrodes are quote unquote cheap compared to the cost of the generator, which can be the cost of a new car. So people for spinal cord simulation have to go through a litany of different tests, have to go through a neuropsychology clearance, that actually doesn't exist here because, again, there's no insurance approval for it. Um, but you get denials because it's all experimental. If you look at every major insurer, uh, it's deemed experimental. The only kind of sure shot is going through Medicare, um, and you'll often uh, get that through. There are some tips and tricks to try to do this. Um, so if I have a patient with straightforward occipital neuralgia or, or primary occipital neuralgia, we do a successful trial, I get a denial, I will submit these guy or the original guidelines, the 2015 guidelines, and be like, hey, we have evidence, and then you, you basically document as, as, as much as you can be like, this is the patient's history, um, look how much pain relief they got, um, and here are the literally our national guidelines which support its use. And uh, there's reasonable success, I find reasonable success there, maybe not things like uh, trigeminal neuropathic pain, um, but a lot of these times you're just fighting, fighting insurance to try to get, to, to, to get the approvals through. And that's what's frustrating is that there's nothing um, nothing currently approved and really in the works, it's going to either take a while or there's not a lot of uh, interest for manufacturers to develop a device that can be used uh, for the craniofacial region. So do you think, I mean, can we get to a, a point where we've got, say, level two evidence and what what is it going to take to get there? So based on uh, the, the temporary devices that just um, got approval based on a retrospective, retrospective real world data, uh, they are looking at a prospective a prospective study. Um, so not a randomized study though. Um, so prospective open label. Um, to get to uh, randomized fashion, um, we'll take interest from industry again. I, might, I mean, there was interest uh, uh, with the original migraine studies. Um, probably what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to do it in a, a heterogeneous craniofacial pain model. Um, if you just do it for acceptable neurology, it'd be difficult to, to, to gather that many patients to do in a rigorous fashion. Um, so you're going to have to look at um, mixed headaches again, um, occipital headaches, including occipital neuralgia. Um, you'll have to find interest from industry and be able to run a trial. Um, and that remains to be seen. We're getting a little uh, long on time. What did we not ask? What, in, the la in a minute or less, what, what should we know that, that didn't come through yet? 
Hmm. I think um, what's interesting about this guideline, and this came up in the, the Joint uh, Guidelines Reviewed Committee, was that uh, this is one of the few guidelines where really there's not much of an update because no one's really doing active research here. And one of the comments from the reviewers is like, you only have six studies that met your inclusion criteria over the last five or six years. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's pain. So when we talk about uh, functional stereotactic epilepsy and you, you break it down to just pain neurosurgery, you will find that pain neurosurgery has a very low level of evidence out outside of things like spinal cord stimulation and uh, uh, intrathecal pain pumps. And we do a lot of things that are off label using off uh, like um, orphan indications or off label use of, of technology. Um, and that's an interesting thing about how we're going to start writing future guidelines for pain. So again, spinal cord simulation has evidence that is currently being written and hopefully will be published soon. Uh, but things like this, the, the smaller indications will probably not be guidelines anymore. They will be um, clinical practice parameters. An interesting segue into how we uh, define evidence for these indications in the future. Um, and we, we had that conversation that uh, uh, if we had originally done these guidelines, the ones that were published in 2015, um, uh, in a contemporary fashion, we probably wouldn't have done it uh, this way. And so this is kind of grandfathering the acceptable nerve stimulation guidelines to the current format. Well, I uh, appreciate all of your uh, effort uh, that went into this. Uh, it was a great read. I highly encourage it for all of our listeners. With that, I want to thank you very much for joining us. I want to thank you for, for being willing to talk to us a little bit later in the evening. Uh, for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone a good night. Thank you.